depression, the pandemic are like an x-ray of society. You see it all the way through and it becomes totally visible to you what kind of country you are living in. And we all know the answer to that now. So the question is, will we be able to make the changes to make it a greater country or will we continue on the slide that we're on now? Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. So joining me today is a longtime friend, fellow at the Center on National Security, associate an all-round, just wonderfully interesting person, Lawrence Wright. And before we get into our conversation, I want to tell you a little bit about him. He's a man of many talents, but all of them involve sort of bringing his head and his heart to the page. He's written one novel before this. This is his second. He's written plays, screenplays. He's a New Yorker staff writer. And we're going to talk about some of his other talents at the very end of the show. What Larry does is he takes a topic that you can feel deeply interests him and then just goes with it and see where it takes him. And I've had the pleasure sometimes of being in the room with him and watch him question people. And he always asks a question that I'm sort of like, of course. And it's always a question like, well, what were you actually thinking when you took the following act? And this book of all of his books plays along those lines. What would epidemiologists, what would family members, what would heads of state think, do, and feel in the circumstance of a worldwide pandemic? So let's get to the book. The book is called The End of October. It came out yesterday, the 28th of April, and I think you all should read it. And I'm not going to have any spoiler alerts here, but I do want to talk a little bit about the book. First, I want to ask you, before we get into the larger conversation about the book, do you remember when pandemic first began to interest you, when it became something you thought you might want to write a book about? What piqued your interest initially? Yeah, I was a young reporter and I was living in Atlanta. And that's where the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are. And uh, in 1976, there was a mysterious outbreak of swine flu. This was the same strain of flu, H1N1, that killed between 50 and 100 million people in 1918. But in 1976, it killed only one, uh, this young recruit named David Lewis at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And I was totally intrigued and fascinated by the, the people that I met. You know, it was just it's a world that uh, I was very unfamiliar with. And right after that, there was Legionnaire's disease. And both of those were very strange, mysterious, and dangerous outbreaks. So since then, you know, I had nurtured an interest in public health and also the danger of pandemic disease. That's really interesting. Um, Some of the book takes place in Atlanta. So you're aware of the CDC throughout the book. The other thing about it, and you just gave a little bit, a little, you know, history, is that the book is full 
of just things you want to know so badly right now. It's full of the history of these diseases. It's full of the life of an epidemiologist. It's full of the difficulties of finding a vaccine. So one of the reasons I loved it was not just was I attached to the characters, but I learned so much about how to think about pandemic, how to think about responses to it, and just general things I never would have known. And my reactions was, I should have known this before. You know, it would have been helpful. So thank you for this book that I got to read, and at least I know something now. So. There are a bunch of eerie parallels, I hate to say this, between what you wrote and what's happening. And I could list some of them. Some of them are terms like shelter in place, which we're now also familiar with, which in your book, um, it hits nursing homes, right? You talk about it hitting a nursing home, right? Um, the vice president is in charge of the task force. I mean, there are a number of things like this. What I'm wondering from you is, does this surprise you? When you look at, you say, ooh, that's what happened in the book, or is it more like, of course, this is what we knew was going to happen? Well, some of them are lucky guesses or educated guesses, but uh, most of the things that people say are coincidental are just things that I learned from talking to public health experts, reading materials, briefing books, that same things that the administration had in their hands. Uh, there were tabletop exercises at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere. Those were incredibly useful to me, but they all laid out what would happen if you know, such a disease came along. And of course, when I was talking to public health experts and asked them, you know, what would happen, for instance, if the 1918 flu or some equivalent returned, they'd been thinking about it for their entire careers. They just were waiting for somebody to ask. Yeah. Is there anything that's happened in this pandemic that surprised you that wasn't something that was part of a tabletop or on your radar or somehow been presented to you? Yeah, I think the one thing that is most surprising to me and was underplayed in the tabletop exercises and other studies is the solidarity of ordinary people to shelter in place at tremendous personal cost, oftentimes financial cost, the loss of contact with friends and family members. It's rugged. It's a big sacrifice. And I think that it's made an enormous difference in the progress of this disease. Or the lack of progress of the disease. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's right. You know, one of the things that struck me about the book is that, yes, you're telling a story and you're talking about science, but you also have a vision of humanity and of civilization. And I don't want to describe it. I don't want to give it my adjectives, but I'm just wondering, you know, given what you just said about how amazing people have been willing to make these sacrifices in order to stop the spread of the disease as best they can in current circumstances, did you approach this book with a sense of, you know, humanity's really in trouble? Because that's sort of what comes across to me, and I, or civilization is yeah. in trouble in the way. And I just wondered if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I guess that my sense of despair about some aspects of civilization comes through. You know, I've been a foreign correspondent for a lot of my career, and I've spent a lot of time in other countries where, you know, we don't have the privileges uh, that we have in this country, the freedom, the, the access to education and opportunity. And we tend to think that that's the way things always are going to be. That's not necessarily true. We think of progress, but we don't think of regress. And I fear that we've been regressing for some time. Just look at our country in its recent history when it's been faced with stressful challenges like the Depression. Uh, after the Depression, or during the depression, we completely reshaped our society to give it safety nets and welfare uh, 
compassionate services, jobs for ordinary people. It, American society remade itself in the face of this terrible threat. World War II, uh, America became the most powerful manufacturing and commercial entity in the history of the world. You know, we faced a challenge and, and we surpassed it. And then most recently in our own experience, 9-11, uh, there was a time when I remember so strongly the sense that, oh, we're going to have to stand for something now. You know, we've got to get serious. We've got to become the country that our parents gave us. You know, I mean, so many people, young people joined, you know, the army and stuff like that. There was a tremendous outpouring, a similar feeling. Mm -hmm. But what happened, unfortunately, was we invaded Iraq. We made a colossal mistake. And the reshaping of our country that might have taken place didn't. And in fact, you know, it, it changed for the worse in many respects. So we have that opportunity. We're at a crossroads and uh, we can go one way or the other. Recent history is not very encouraging, but if you look back in our history, you could say that this was the moment when faced with a challenge, we saw all the challenges in front of us. A war, a depression, a pandemic are like an X-ray of society. You see it all the way through, and it becomes totally visible to you what kind of country you are living in. And we all know the answer to that now. So the question is, will we be able to make the changes to make it a greater country, or will we continue on the slide that we're on now? Yeah, I mean, there are two quotes from the book that stand out to me, sort of along those lines. I'm glad to hear that you're more hopeful about where we can go. Yeah. One of them was when the people who are well-to-do are being tended to and given access to whether it's a vaccine or some kind of care, and those without aren't. We've seen this now in our current yeah. circumstance. And one of the things that you say in the book is, this is the country we have become. And I just read it and I thought, okay, I'm done. I turned you off pretty early then. (laughs) No, it made me want to read more because I wanted to see the country we were going to evolve to be, you know. And then there's a quote later in the book where you say, um, you attribute this to your hero of your book, your epidemiologist, and you say, civilization can take us so far away from our true natures that we never know who we really are. And I thought that was another piece of this, which isn't just about who we are as a society, but who we are as the individuals who live on this earth. And there's a lot of that in the book, actually. So I just want people to know that because I think it's a really rich part of the book. You talk about being a foreign correspondent, being around the world. One of the other things about this book are the relationships between the protagonist of the book and people around the world that are dealing with the disease. And you make some really close relationships interculturally. Part of this disease takes root at the Hajj. Right. Which was, I thought, um, a really stark and scary idea, right? Because we don't know what's going to happen with any of these kinds of public events going forward. And I just kind of wondered, do you think that as in your book, there is as Um, united a global scientific front, as you present in your book, a conversation that's taking place globally among scientists, forgetting all the politicians. Oh, yeah. And that's very hopeful to me. I mean, there is a a separate culture of science has nothing to do with nations and borders and so on there, you know, and it's our hope, you know, that they'll be able to save us. You know, Karen, that whole scene in Mecca came from 
my experience in living in Saudi Arabia after 9-11 when I was working yeah. on the Living Tower. And uh, the Saudis, if you recall, wouldn't let me in as a reporter. So mm -hmm. I got this job as an expat worker. And mm -hmm. my job was mentoring young reporters in Jeddah, bin Laden's hometown. And one of my very first assignments was supervising our coverage of the Hajj. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember thinking, uh, this is kind of dangerous, isn't it? I mean, people flying in from all over the globe, many of them maybe carrying diseases. There are two or three million people there. And then suddenly they all disperse. And it reminded me when I wrote about Legionnaires disease, it, you know, it was a convention in Philadelphia of a bunch of Legionnaires. And, you know, and they all went out and there was a great anxiety that they'll be carrying this mysterious disease to their own communities. It didn't turn out that way because it wasn't a contagious disease. But, you know, those two incidents put the idea in my mind that uh, mass gatherings uh, from a public health point of view are inherently dangerous. And, you know, the truth is all my reporters got sick uh, and they brought it back to Jeddah and everybody got sick in, in the office too. So. I mean, yeah, I wonder if our view of mass gatherings will ever recover from this because you never know. And what we've learned is you sort of don't know until it's too late. Yeah. One of the reasons I asked you about these scientists, just guessing, do you think that we're going to give a little more credence and maybe more of a voice to scientists going forward? you know, at the nation state level, at the international level, or do you think no? Well, we're in trouble if we don't. Yeah. You know, it's, it's absolutely important not only to listen to them, but to fund them. Let's take the example of the vaccine that we're looking for right now. And, yeah. and there are, I think 90 different ones in development all over the world. And this is an example of what we were talking about earlier. But there had been progress on a vaccine against MERS, which was a Middle East respiratory syndrome, which killed 37% of all the people that infected. So highly fatal disease. Yeah. It was a coronavirus also. They were working on that and the money ran out and they stopped working on it. Well, what they were working on, they had to go back to because of the similarity uh, with coronavirus that we're dealing with now. Had wow. they been able to go to human trials, we would have had several weeks ahead of ourselves. You know, perhaps many lives could have been saved, but, you know, the money dried up and the interest dried up with it. And so um, that's an example of how we have to get behind these research efforts and make sure they're followed through. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, that when you talk about the New Deal and how things changed after the Great Depression and we rebuilt the way we thought of ourselves as a society and what it could offer to citizens, I do think that so, not just medicine, but I think science, you know, the scientific mindset will prove a very important. I mean, some people have talked about Angela Merkel's experience in Germany handling this as being yeah. that of a scientist, right, because she's a chemist. And I think, you know, you could probably play that out in a lot of different spheres, whether it's the university or elsewhere. Scientists really seem to be, you know, rising to the occasion because they see things. And I guess this is my question for you. It's not just the knowledge that they have. It's the way they approach this. And this is very clear in your book. And it's not that they're emotionless at all, right? Your characters are completely, yeah. you know, involved with other human beings in a very emotional way. But there is a kind of scientific clarity of mind. Did you find that in getting to know these scientists when you were doing your research for this book? 
you know, I'm, I'm smiling because I, yeah, <laughs> a couple of occasions, I painted myself into a corner as a novelist. I had my hero in a place where, you know, he didn't have any laboratory equipment and so on, and he had this horrible disease to deal with. And, you know, what could he do? And, you know, I laid out all the parameters and I thought, well, I don't know the answer to this. You know? right. So I turned right. to my experts. And these are the same guys that are now, you know, working on the vaccines for COVID-19. But I said, here's the situation. And they were so excited. It's a puzzle. You know, essentially right. what they do is, is they are puzzle solvers. And uh, COVID-19 is a tremendous puzzle. But, you know, I gave them my puzzle and they helped me figure out a solution that I could never have come to myself. And so I began to appreciate not only the depth of knowledge that they brought to the situation, but also the mentality, the kind of adventurous, excited, inquisitive mentality that characterized that kind of scientific thinking. Yeah, well, that comes through in the book in a very nice way that's kind of settles you down in the current context that we're living in. I wanted to ask you a little bit about leadership, political leadership in this context. You brought up 9-11. You and I know one another because of our joint interest in what happened to this country after 9-11 and your fabulous work. And one of the things we're really confronting now is who are the leaders to look to? How are we going to get through this leadership-wise? And what I'm really wondering is, does it matter? Does it matter if there's wise leadership at the head of the country? Or is this something that scientists will figure out however they figure out, no matter what? Well, let's start with the delayed reaction in this country. Let's just take America to the threat. I mean, we've all learned that, you know, the, the administration had briefing books warning about a pandemic and that it is coming to the United States in January. They knew this. Honestly, in January, I knew it because, uh, you know, I'd been writing this novel and, you know, a mysterious virus that arises in China. When have we heard about that before? Practically all influenzas, you know, come out of yeah. that region. And so uh, I thought, you know, you're not going to be able to just stop it by stopping flights, you know. Yeah. So leadership in that regard, yes. Leadership, I have to say, I'm going to talk about the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because I mentioned earlier that I had done some stories that were related to that institution. I was so impressed when I was a young reporter with the professionalism and the efficiency of that organization and the swashbuckling intellectuals that, you know, you find the epidemiologists going out in the field facing formidable diseases like Ebola and really, really admired them. It's been heartbreaking to see that great institution stumble so badly, failing to produce the swab test that would detect mm -hmm. whether you're uh, infected or not. At a time when other nations and even the World Health Organization offered an effective test and we turned it down and delayed weeks and weeks and weeks, many people died during that period of time. Uh, the disease spread without us understanding. And now we're in the same boat with the antibody tests, which we desperately need in order mm -hmm. to open up our society again. It's repeating itself. So I don't know if it's a lack of leadership or if it's the budget cuts or if it's the absorption into the health and human services and you know the loss of authority. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's all of those things. But we have suffered a terrible loss. And that's another thing that we'll have to remedy right away. If you want to talk a little bit about 9-11 and what we learned after 9-11, both in terms of what we could do as a society to address a context where there's fear 
fear of death, fear of not having control over what can harm you and your children. And you talked about the decision to go to war in Iraq, which many experts say is maybe the worst decision the American national security establishment has taken in its history. So I guess the question I want to ask is, are there lessons from 9-11 of what we should do and what we shouldn't do, given the fact that we have this overarching threat that is now upon us? One of the things that that makes me think of, Karen, is, you know, the idea of responding to terrorism was that we want to keep it over there. We don't want it here. And the whole model was, we're not going to let it come back to America. We're going to contain it in the rest of the world. Right. You can't do that with a virus. It isn't over there. It's everywhere. So I don't think that our leaders and our intelligence community have figured out exactly how to deal with something that is not only international, but it's domestic. And, you know, we're not set up very well to respond to that. And moreover, with terrorism, we were told not to worry about it. Yeah. We've got this, you know, we're, we're, and in many respects, we did a good job in containing terrorism. I don't think that the lessons that we learned from that are going to apply to this. People have to have a, a healthy uh, appreciation of the threat. It's not a false one. And moreover, it's not going to be a singular experience. If you just look back to 2003, when we had SARS, and then Ebola, and then MERS, and then West Nile, and then Zika, and then avian influenza, these new viruses are coming at us at a rapid pace, a, a quickening pace. And so COVID-19 is just the latest, but it won't be the last. And it, I don't think it'll be the most serious by any means. So let's talk a little bit along those lines then about the WHO, because the WHO has been sort of under attack, right, in this particular pandemic. I'm not sure that's the most useful way to go about this, but at the same time, we're seeing a lot of talk among pundits about American leadership being in trouble, American needs to lead the world. I'm really wondering, in terms of just thinking forward, how important are these international organizations, given that it's a global issue, it's not an American issue? And do you think that the WHO has been harmed by this experience, that it will recover in a robust way from the kind of criticism? What do you think? Well, it's not a perfect organization by any means. What you have to understand about the WHO is a supplicant. It has no authority. Like when, you know, after New Year's Eve, when China made this declaration that they had a virus loose, uh, they would not let the WHO in for three weeks. And that sure put me on in a state of alarm because it made me remember the SARS outbreak when, according to reports, you know, it arose in China, but there were reports that when health authorities came to inspect the Chinese put patients in ambulances and had them ride around the city until the authorities were gone. That's, that's not amazing. what happened this time, but it has happened. And it's not just China that's hid the ball in the past. So you need an international authority that has some authority to enforce actions, to actually go into countries and examine the situation, because it's not just a national problem. An outbreak anywhere, right. it can be an outbreak everywhere. Whatever the faults are with the World Health Organization, it's the only organization you know, this charged with trying to manage international outbreaks. So we need to fortify it instead of weakening it by, for instance, taking money away from it. 
You know, one of the things that you write about in the book is the nation state conflict that comes to the fore at the same time as the pandemic and how it can be used for a lot of nefarious ways. And you create a scenario with Russia, making the reader understand just what could get out of control in terms of accusations of was it lab created, in terms of accusations about how it's being addressed. And so I wonder if in our current circumstances, do you think that these nation state tensions are being calm down enough? Or do you think that it's something we really need to put greater effort into making them calm down? Because one thing you make, you suggest in the book is, or you at least suggested to me is how dangerous it could be if these things overlap, that intense nation state conflict and a pandemic that's not under control. Well, Karen, we have all these rivalries, especially in our relationship with Russia. Essentially, we're at war. It is a cyber war, but it's ongoing and it's been going on for a long time. And there have been terrible losses, mainly financial. But this is something that we've we've decided to accept as a cost of doing business. I think it's a terrible mistake. These rivalries, moreover, are pretty much pointless. There's no win-win at the end, uh, no lose, win-lose. Everybody's losing. So you know, here we are in the whole world is in distress. And these, you know, these assaults, especially from China and Russia, are continuing. And, you know, we're doing our part to blame China for it as well, but we're based on no evidence at all. Well, these are dangerous and unproven accusations, and they create a lot of hatred. And where the hatred develops its own constituent. And so I, that's what I worry about, is that it's not going to be just talk. It may not just be cyber attacks. Real bullets could fly at the end of that. I think that's right. I also think that we've been for the last however many months or year or so, really been focused on things foreign policy-wise and threat matrix-wise, very different than after the 9-11 era. We never really had a moment that it ended right? We didn't try the 9-11 defendants. They're still at Guantanamo with no trial yet. Bin Laden's death was not a moment where we said, okay, the war on terror is over. I'm wondering if, given the magnitude of the breadth of this pandemic, if we really have come to a place where there's a shift and that the 9-11 era, which was sort of you know lingering, we're going to move on because of this. It's an interesting idea, Karen, and let me play with that for a moment. If we just talk about the Middle East and South Asia, for instance, you know, that region is characterized by either really weak governments or autocratic ones. And uh, the weak governments are, are weaker now. And, uh, you know, ISIS, as a matter of fact, is administering <laughs> medicines and stuff like that and trying to establish right. itself once again as a legitimate authority in the right. face of these crumbling nation states. And so they will be empowered by that. Uh, the autocracies have become more autocratic, and that'll breed more resentment. I think even in China, this is going to be a problem. You know, I think that there's a smoldering sense of resentment and anger mm -hmm. at, the, at the way the government has behaved. So both of those trends, I think, are worrisome in terms of developing terrorists. It, it may not have that effect, but it could. There is, to me, a worrisome relationship between 
terrorism and bio-warfare. You know, Al-Qaeda and especially Aum Shinrikyo, the Japanese cult, mm -hmm. uh, experimented with bio-warfare, you know, trying to create some sort of agents mm -hmm. that work in that regard. And there are white nationalist groups that have as a goal reducing the human population, especially the non-white population. So, you know, I think that these things overlap in dangerous ways. And we have to be very careful about making sure that we're on top of that. But we also have to have a, a scientific and medical establishment that is up to the task of combating it. It's not going to be all soldiers in the future. You know, the real warriors in this are going to be our scientists. Yeah, I think that's right. You touched upon something really interesting, which is something that's fascinated me uh, over the recent times, which is what's really happening with the nation state, right? Yeah. And I know that's outside your book, but it's not outside the general course of your work over the past many decades, because the nation state is really going through a very fragile period. And it's not just non-state actors, right? It's just that we have a lot of failed states, a lot of states that we don't quite call failed states, but they're bordering on the yeah. brink of failed state status. And we've always organized our world in terms of nation states, right? For you know, however many past hundred yeah. odd years. So the question is, what do you think? You think the nation state has a moment in time and that maybe we'll move on to some other global rethinking of the organization of the world or not? I think the nation state will remain, but I think it will be a different entity. Just look at our response in this particular COVID-19 crisis, where the president says to the governors, it's sort of up to you. You guys deal with it. I mean, that's really his attitude. And then the governors, like in our state, uh, turned to the mayors and said, you Texas, know. Just you, Texas, yeah. in your state, Texas, yes. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, we're, we're opening up on Friday, at least partly. Um, okay. But um, you see that, you know, power devolving to more mm -hmm. local entities. And I've thought for a long time that cities uh, are becoming more and more potent institutions. And some cities have more in common with cities in other countries than like Austin may have with more in common with uh, Amsterdam. <laughs> in some ways than it does some other places in the state. But those kinds of relationships with technology and travel become far more fortified. And I, it's not that they undermine the nation state exactly, but they create a parallel course of interaction. And then there are cultures within that, like the scientific community, which is not national exactly at all. It's international. Yeah. And, you know, those kinds of of overlays, I think, created a more complex uh, picture of the network of societies. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's been a lot of talk over the recent decade among academics and others about governors and mayors, the Global Mayors Association, you know, that talks about how cities are more like one another than their outlying yeah. areas of their state. And it's sort of been a steady pulse. It hasn't really come into public consciousness in a, in a big way yet. But I think you're right. I think cities for all the battles they may have to fight in the coming pandemic days. I think that's right. That's, that's well, we'll have to have you back to talk about that. Singapore may be the new model. In what ways? Well, it's sort of a city state. And uh, it reminds me of the old Athenian model. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've often thought that Austin really should be a walled city. Yeah. 
Yeah. I do feel sometimes that we're besieged by the Goths uh, and they're knocking at the gate. <laughs> so, but we don't but, have walls up, unfortunately. But your play opened in Houston. Yeah. So I wouldn't build those walls. To, you've no, got to be able to get in and out to I'm go to your play. Fond of Houston, that's right. <laughs> okay. Before we leave, I just wanted to talk to you about a couple of things that are unrelated. One is I just want to thank you formally in front of all these people for making me produce your Al-Qaeda one-man show. Remember that? that? Yeah. it was. A yeah, big... you called me on the phone and you were like, you're going to produce what? But anyway, it was fantastic. And since then, you've done other one-man shows. So I'm hoping you'll do more theater. So I wanted to say that. But then I wanted to bring up something else. In the submarine, I'm not going to say why there's a submarine. I don't want to spoil anything in the book. But there is a submarine. There's a um, bathroom. And the bathroom has two signs. And one is Dolly Parton. And the other one is John Wayne. Is that correct? That's right. And what we learn is that the Dolly Parton sign is for when women are supposed to be in there. And the John Wayne sign is when men are supposed to be in there. Correct? Right. So that made me remember something about you that I think most of our viewers and listeners do not know, which is that in addition to your other thoughtful and wonderful enterprises, um, you play music. Yeah. You're a musician. So I wondered if you would just close by telling us a little bit about that part of you. I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> well, Dolly Parton. I was okay. like, I know why this is Dolly Parton. I got it. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I took up the piano when I was 38 and a half in order to play Great Balls of Fire on my 40th birthday. It was the hardest thing I ever did. And I'm still taking lessons. But I'm in a band. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't been able to play together for a, a while now. And the club is closed down, of course. But... Uh, it's brought me more joy. What's the name of the band? Hoodoo, W-H-O-D-O. Right. Yes. And okay. uh, also, Karen, I don't know if you know, I'm working on a musical. Aha, uh-huh. tell us. Uh, it's about Texas politics. It's called Mr. Texas. You and, have mentioned this. Yeah, Marsha Ball, uh, the great R&B singer, piano player, and my son, Gordon, are all my collaborators. And uh, I had more fun doing that than anything. So yes, music is you know one of the great joys in my life, and both of my kids are musicians, amateurs. But we all we when we get together, we often sit down and play some music. Yeah, and I'm not sure your definition of amateur and everybody's definition of amateur are the same thing because if, if you came to hear me, you'd say I, this is an amateur. <laughs> I have heard you. Yeah, I've heard you. I've heard who do, and they didn't. It sounded great to me. Well, they're anyway, all, all my friends are really fine musicians, and I hide behind their accomplishments. Well, you found very smart people to associate with, and you're going to have to just build a bigger stage so you can be further away from each other. That would be a very good idea. That's what my yeah. brother's doing with his band. He's just building a bigger stage. Really? Yes, I'll put you in touch. You can talk about how to build a stage. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, this has been a total pleasure. I want everybody to read this book. It's a wonderful read, and not only will you be engrossed, but you will just learn so much that you want to know right now at this period of time. So, Larry, as always, I hope to see you again soon. And um, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. 
In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interests online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.